Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor and in today's show we're going to be talking all about digital banks in the Asia-Pacific region with a special focus, of course, on the growing market that is Australia. To help dive into this topic, I'm joined by some excellent guests. Making a Fintech Insider debut, we have Van Lee, who is co-founder at Zinger Bank. Welcome to the show, Van. Tell us a little bit about Zinger. Thanks, Simon. Um, so just a little bit about Zinja. We're an independent Australian 100% digital bank or neobank designed for mobile, designed with our customers and with their interests in mind. We launched about three years ago, bringing our first product to market in February 2018 with a glow-in-the-dark prepaid travel card. Uh, we then got our full banking licence a little while after that in September last year, launching bank accounts on the same day. And we launched our No Strings Savings Account in January this year. And very soon, within the next couple of weeks, um, we hope to launch our US uh, stock trading product, um, Dabble, um, subject to regulatory approvals, of course. Wow, launching products at a fair old speed. Well done to all you guys involved. I think uh, the speed of fintech, it never sleeps, does it? Uh, also joining us, we have Stuart Houston, who is financial services industry lead over at Google Cloud. Thanks for joining us, Stuart. Tell us a little bit more about what you do over at Google Cloud. Yeah, thanks, Simon. Hi, good to be here. So so I work in our industry team looking after uh, all of our financial services clients across uh, Asia Pacific. Uh, and that that's really two parts to the role. So one is helping the Google Cloud team understand what it is that financial services firms need. And that's everything from the, uh, the uh, digital natives up through the uh, unregulated fintechs through to uh, the larger uh, established institutions, both uh, global and, and domestic it's, it's systematically important banks and others. Um, and then, of course, more importantly, working with our customers to bring uh, all of the innovations and all of the things that Google does in infrastructure and in insights in machine learning, to uh, help them uh, achieve their goals in in what they're trying to achieve. Fantastic, Stuart. And uh, last but by no means least is the one and only Dexter Cousins. Uh, Dexter, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, what you get up to, sir? Simon, great to be here and thanks very much for having me on. Um, Tier 1 People, we're an executive search and advisory firm. We're known for helping companies like Revolut launch in Australia. And we also help Aussie fintech scale and expand globally. Um, also run and host the Fintech Australia podcast. And, and that came about um, actually in part to yourself, Simon. I remember reading an article about a year back when uh, you, which you wrote on actually getting Fintech Insider off the ground. And it struck me that we had nothing like this for Aussie Fintechs. Um, so earlier this year, got together with Fintech Australia and the show's been a, a huge success. So we got great guests, I think, uh, Guest number two was David Embrier, mm -hmm. um, and it's just it's just snowballed from there. Fantastic and great to hear that the uh, the world of fintech is is growing uh, exponentially uh, and amazing what can happen with the blog post. So great to hear, Dexter. Well done to to all involved. Um, I want to start us off with some definitions because there are so many terms people throw around. There's digital banks, there's neobanks, virtual banks, smart banks, mobile banks. Dexter, I'm going to come to you first. How do you unpick all of that? <laughs> Thank, thanks for uh, sticking that that one on me, Simon. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the the reality is that you know it's a digital bank, um, and the name I think is more for marketing purposes than anything else. Um, I don't think consumers really care. Um, for them, it's it's really about the experience. 
Um, yeah, I know that uh, Eric at, at Zinja has got some kind of clearer definitions, so maybe Zvan could give you a, a better answer than I could. Zvan, do you want to jump in there? Sure. So uh, in addition to being a digital bank, what distinguishes neobanks is that is the neo part, neo being new. There's no legacy branches, which ties into being virtual or digital, but also there's no legacy systems, no legacy culture, no legacy thinking. It's not a collaboration with a bank. It's not a mobile app for an existing bank. Everything's designed brand new to bring innovation to customer centricity from the ground up, from purpose to culture to your board composition to your investor profile to the tech and the app and how all of that translates into a new experience in customers' hands. So whilst the customer interaction may still be through a mobile app, where it comes from and how it's been built is entirely new from the ground up and designed by a whole new generation of leaders in banking as well. Mm. A detailed definition there. Uh, Stuart, anything that you'd add to that? Oh, just just to say that, uh, look, at Google, we, we think about it as digital natives, very closely to what Van was just saying. So were you born in the cloud? Were you born uh, thinking uh, in digital terms uh, as opposed to uh, all of the complexity and, and legacy that exists in many of the established players. Uh, it's not to say they're, they're not uh, absolutely investing in becoming more digital, but it's a long journey and obviously uh, a very different set of challenges than when you are born in that space only two, three, four years ago. Indeed. And I think that's the difference. We often at 11FS talk about digitized versus digital. Uh, if you're born digital, it's fundamentally different to digitizing a paper process, which is still valid. It's just extremely hard, as you say, Stuart. But you know, the, the big four Australian banks are incredibly dominant. Um, can you give us some, some sort of context to that market three, four years ago versus what's happening now? Yeah, sure. So, so I think... Um... You know, if I think about what's happening, let me start with where we are today and then go back in time a bit. So today, you know, many, many people have uh, relationships with the established banks as well as with uh, uh, fintechs or, or neobanks or, or digital natives. And, and it's it's not an either or. It is absolutely an and situation at the moment. And, and obviously that uh, uh, is changing quite quickly in terms of how much of a, a person's financial relationships are with a digital native versus the established banks. Um, three or four years ago, it would have been a much, much lower percentage. It's really only the trigger being, obviously, the, the regulators issuing uh, the licences starting in Australia three, three years ago, I think, three or four years ago. And then, obviously, more recently, we're now seeing in Singapore, Malaysia, Hong Kong, uh, a whole new wave of digital licences coming out as well. So it really is triggered off the regulators, but it's certainly changing very, very quickly. And Dexter, how do you see that? Um, well, what we've seen certainly over this last few years is obviously the, emer the emergence of digital players. Um, but having said that, I think the Aussie banks have actually been pretty strong at digital as it as it was. So the, I think the challenge that we've seen has really been how the, the new entrants can differentiate themselves. Um, we've seen some really positive first signs and early signs of, of new customers and high growth. I think a lot of that's been driven by some fairly enticing um, you know, deposit rates and interest rates on deposits. But nonetheless, I think you know, that we're, we're seeing that um, Aussie consumers are embracing these new offerings that are coming to the fore. That's fantastic. And Van, I want to go to you, though. Is is this just an and, as Stuart says, or is there an or there? Are people actually ready to leave their traditional banks, or is that is that not the goal here? It's quite interesting. There was um, 
there was an inquiry into competition in the um, banking and financial services sector in Australia a number of years ago, and uh, it found that the big four had quite significant market share, um, not only under their own brands, but also in the sub-brands that they have. Many of them have a multi-brand strategy. So on the surface, it might look like there's numerous players in the market. But if you look at the ownership structure underneath them, a lot of them still um, are ultimately owned by the big four. And so the um, I think the, it was the Productivity Commission and also the ACCC really dug underneath that to look at, you know, is that level of competition really translating into new customer outcomes? And that's always the key question, isn't it, Van? Uh, there's another good survey here by uh, ME Bank that revealed 94% of Australians apparently don't trust their bank, which would be really significant. I'd love to know the sample size for that one. Um, but there was also a 2018 Deloitte survey that revealed 64% of Australians do not feel the bank has uh, big. Uh, the big bank has their best interests at heart. And Dexter, is this something that's shared broadly? Do you think is was this sort of a narrative that was was quite wide? It's no, it's it's really interesting when you get these surveys, Simon, because um, I think I would say the results don't surprise me. But what you might be surprised by, you know, CBA, I think, announced just the other day they were getting something like seven point five million active customers on their app per day during COVID. So we're seeing that there's a lot of engagement still by the big four banks with their customers. Um, and I think this is probably one of the, the you know the biggest challenges that faces the you know the businesses like Zenja, Vault Bank, who are really trying to push through what is, you know, despite what we've seen with the Royal Commission, I think still a, a fairly kind of a, you know reluctant um, consumer group to give up entirely engagement with the big four banks. Mm, yeah, that it, giving that up entirely is 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 obviously quite a quite a push, and certainly something uh, as I think with the UK hat, we've 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 seen the beginnings of. Um, but no, it, it was more of an and than an or still very much to this day. Um, but I mean, the licensing requirements in Australia have they've changed much? Because I think in May two thousand eighteen, um, the licensing regime lowered the entry requirements for a new bank to start. I mean, Van, that's probably a subject near and dear to your heart. So the, the licensing regime has completely changed what the what the cost barriers to entry look like for a brand new licensing entrant. Um, it's it's certainly opened up the market for disruptive innovation through new market entrants rather than the incremental innovation that the industry seen has has seen for a long time with the the big four really dealing with the incumbents dilemma. By lowering that that capital cost of entry, it's really enabled brand new startups, brand new thinking in the space um, to challenge how things have always been done. And uh, we're seeing that with you know the likes of ourselves and and other new licensees um, come into into the market. It's a really interesting uh, development, isn't it, that you see sort of happening uh, around the world, Stuart. But the the big four Australian banks have uh, you know, real opportunities, I guess, to uh, think about what what can they do different. So is is there going to be incumbents moving into the the space? Are we going to see collaborations? What, what are you, what are the big four going to do to maintain their dominance or to do more for customers in this space? So I think um, let me, I'm going to answer that in two parts. So, so one is just to sort of touch on the, the previous discussion. While there is a, certainly an end situation, you know, what, what, I, what we are seeing is more and more of the profitable business is being 
uh, uh, sort of uh, won by the the digital natives as they can offer very unique propositions, uh, very uh, you know, agile outcomes. I mean, we we have clients that sort of roll out new capabilities you know, every week and two weeks. And for a big bank to roll out a new capability every week is just um, you know, unheard of just in terms of the complexities and the regression testing and all that sort of stuff that needs to happen. But I think the other thing that's really interesting is um, just with with the uh, the rise of the fintechs, uh, there's a whole new set of business models and, and, and capabilities being rolled out. So, for example, in Australia, you know, we're seeing the demographic wave move off credit cards and onto um, Afterpay and, and, and organisations like that. Now, they're not a, a regulated bank in, in, in the sense that um, Zinger is or NAB or ComBank or so on, but they are absolutely, you know, having a dent in the market, which is why we're seeing investments and collaborations with uh, similar fintechs, uh, for example, Klarna with um, CBA and so on. So I think um, what's happening is there is absolutely a desire to collaborate um, from the big banks, uh, but they are still... Uh, working furiously just to catch up with the speed and the agility and really the the, the single-minded focus that a, a neobank or, a, or a, um, another fintech can bring to the table where they're focusing just on one or two parts of the financial relationship and doing it really, really well in a way that's attracting and retaining customers. That, that specialism is really powerful, isn't it? I love that point about uh, sort of taking the profitable bits. Uh, if the if the big bank is still sort of managing the the current account and the everyday uh, account and the salary, um, but a lot of that salary then is disappearing somewhere else for everyday spend, or is that you're left holding all of the cost of running that account, but you're not getting that cross sell that you, that you would have got historically, yeah. Dexter? I mean, it, is that sort of almost uh, a business case side of it really really under talked about, or, or how how do you see that conversation evolving? Uh, it's a great question, Simon. Uh, I think the, the the big challenge for for the digital banks here, if they're going to be consumer facing, is it's a pretty small pond. Um, and and ironically, I would say that you know the the business that's or the 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 bank that's really captured not just my imagination, but I think a lot of a lot of people in in the industry is Judo, and that's a you know similar to Oak North. Um, They've really used technology to reduce costs and and really, I guess, bring the human element and the relationship back into banking. Um, they've had, I think, they've raised something like seven hundred and fifty million Aussie. Um, they've done something like two billion in lending, and what the eighteen months since have had a license. So they're a real success story, and I think it's a it's a a really great example of where technology. Um, can enable what are already profitable models, but just make them more profitable. It's interesting, uh, Stuart, isn't it, that we've had lending for uh, hundreds, if not thousands of years, um, but now applying new models and techniques to them, we can, we can get a lot more efficient. Uh, and, and banks potentially find themselves in a position of uh, sort of trying to use paper and process uh, and digitizing that paper process, digitizing their credit committees versus really reimagining what they could do with these tech tools. Have you seen any good examples of, of what can be done to, to what Dexter's talking about there? Yeah, so so that, that's obviously a lot of the organisations we work with. And, and in Australia, for example, we work with some of the very new market entrants right up to uh, the big four uh, in, in various uh, uh, capacities. And, and I think what we're, you know, what we're seeing as we work with uh, that full range of clients is, is that there is absolutely this challenge of 
just um, trying to digitize what's already in place and already been running successfully for five years, 10 years, 20 years versus reimagining what you could do. So more and more we're seeing our relationships with uh, Google Cloud being established where uh, the the larger organizations, and there was one recently we announced just last, last week with uh, Deutsche Bank, to reimagine banking, um, you know, five years from now, what will banking look like? Uh, and then let's reimagine what all of the processes will look like. And then let's bring the power of uh, innovation from Google and the culture that Google brings to the table to the uh, uh, the absolute focus and intent that organizations like that have to uh, to to remain relevant and to continue to be uh, a dominant provider in their particular market. So we haven't seen that as much in this part of the world yet, but it's absolutely um, beginning to happen. It could be on the cards. Um, Van, I want to come to you though. Like, what do you think about sort of big tech moving into this space? Do you think big tech, the provider of cloud versus big tech, you know, Apple Pay, Google Pay, uh, is, is going to be a, a threat to folks like yourselves in the region? Uh, how, how do you view that? Well, there's, um, I suppose you could look at both the, the supply and demand side of this when it comes to digital banking. On the supply side, it, it'll be interesting to see which um, which of these big techs will be interested in actually becoming a licensed bank um, in and of themselves because that, that's its own process as distinct from simply being a channel or a distribution partner for existing financial products and services to reach into their own um, customer base. And on the demand side, I think it will be interesting to see the degree with which customers are willing to trust big tech with not only their data, but also their money and their financial data. Mm, that's always the question, isn't it, Dexter, about trust? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> you, speaking to speaking to an Aussie um, about trust in banks, I think, is probably not the kind of discussion you want to have on a podcast unless um, <laughs> we're going to have it censored. <laughs> but I think that's... It's, hey, we uh, can just put the explicit content warning on and you can, you yeah, can drop my forms if you want, man. Just yeah, we could. We could. We could. But like, it's, and it, it's just, you know, what can I say? I, I think it's, um, you know, the, the, the industry's really let itself down. Um, and I, I don't think it's the, the fault of individuals. You know, some very good people have unfortunately, um, you know, kind of been caught in the crosshairs as well. But I think what it, it all stems down really is around technology. And I think this is the part that I'd like to see big, pe- big tech playing, um, as well as the, the, the fintech community, is really how do we, one, and I think Stuart touched on this, like reimagine what banking actually is, because I don't think anybody's actually interested in banking when it, when it comes mm-hmm. down to it. Um, and if we're going to talk about trust, I think that, you know, the businesses that I get really excited about are companies like Razor, Grab, and I look at what they're doing and they built communities where there's a lot of trust there. Um, and I think that's something that really gets me excited rather than talking about banking is talking about how, how do we move money? How do we exchange value and what role does big tech play in that along with banks? Yeah, and what problems can you solve for customers and how well are you Absolutely. solving them? One one of the things we talk about at Eleven FS is the intelligent digital services that you know and the customer jobs. So the customer job isn't uh, I'd like to buy a mortgage. I mean, this is a saying as old as banking itself. But I think actually moving that into the technology space is, is key. They don't want to buy a house. Uh 
they, they don't want to, uh, sorry, uh, have a mortgage. They want a home and they want a place to live and they want to furnish it and they want to find somewhere. I think in this day and age, my goodness, oftentimes just save up for the place and actually have a deposit in place where they could ever be a homeowner. And so thinking about that journey in terms of how do we help you become a homeowner? How do we help you then find a place? How do we help you then mortgage it? How do we help you with all the pain that comes after it? Australia has been a real leader in, in doing some of that stuff in, in, in a lot of ways. So not a surprise to, to, to see that really move. But how does that get re-aggregated up into the big techs is, is going to be uh, going to be really interesting to watch. Um, Stuart, any any final thoughts on this before we head to uh, to a quick break? No, just just that I think um, you know we at Google Cloud we are obviously a part of the uh, broader Alphabet family, and um, certainly you know when we think about our role with products like Google Pay, it's very it's absolutely focused on working with the uh, um, the uh, uh, licensed and regulated institutions. So you know certainly. Uh, the way Google works with its clients is is enabling them, providing information and innovation into those processes. So I think um, you know the role for for, for big tech is absolutely uh, critical going forward, especially as we want to manage all the explosion of data and so on. Um, but it's really going to be uh, how do we make banking invisible? Ultimately, is is the the end goal that I certainly hear from many of our larger clients uh, as we work through the region. Yeah, and I think people say that a lot. Um, it, it's become a bit of a buzzword, as is embedded banking. Um, but uh, you know, we uh, we actually published a recent report, which segues nicely into uh, my ad read, uh, all about banking as a service and how embedded banking could be a three point six trillion dollar US uh, opportunity globally. Um, embed- uh, banking as a service really deconstructs the banking stack. It enables brands any brand to embed finance much more easily in their in their everyday offering and tailor financial products to a specific customer need versus traditional white label where it's your brand logo on on the bank's product it is presenting new opportunities for specialized providers and it also uh, offers banks potentially extra revenue streams so you can download our comprehensive no bs view of what banking as a service is and what it means for the industry head to bit.ly forward slash banking as a service or lowercase bit.ly forward slash banking as a service fintech insider listeners we need you if you listen to the show whether this is your first or 450th episode uh, we'd love it if you could take a few minutes to give us your feedback and suggestions to help shape the future of the show we want to know what you like what you don't and where we can improve because we make this podcast for you our listeners and we want to make it better every single time so help us out please take a moment to visit bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey that's bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey all right on with the show Dexter, I want to come to you uh, as we come back into this. Why do you think we've not seen more European and US challenges move into Australia specifically? I mean, you mentioned Revolut, but that's really the exception to the rule. Um, I think it's because it's extremely hard. Uh, If you look at the size of the market, Australia is about the size of Florida. So from an economy perspective, um, you've got all of the, I guess, challenges and all of the competition that you would have in a in a large country, but with you know a, a kind of fraction of the actual scale and economic opportunity, um, we've seen a number of U.S. banks at GFC. I think we we had um, twelve banks exit just through the GFC, and we've seen a number of U.S. banks come in and fail, and, and Asian banks as well. Um, so I think it's a uh, it's just a really tough country to come in, particularly if you're an outsider and get and get traction. Van, do you agree? Yeah, the 
there's uh, quite a few barriers to overcome for, for those specifically to looking to operate as a bank in Australia. The licensing is probably the single biggest one. And whilst we haven't seen um, a lot of European and US challenger banks enter the market, most of the growth that we've seen has been in fintech. And a lot of the models that are growing um, quite rapidly in Australia do have their roots in business models out of um, Europe or the UK post, post the GFC. So in some ways by osmosis and also just the natural um, evolution of business models from one geography to another, we have seen that influence, um, but not as much um, direct market um, entry as we have um, from local startups. It's a lot of learning from what's worked well elsewhere, but also sort of tailoring it to both the, the culture and market nuance, Stuart. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think uh, in addition to what uh, Dexter and Van have just uh, talked about, you know, don't forget there's an incredibly vibrant fintech community in Australia. So KPMG do a survey each year and on the most recent survey, which admittedly is now nine months old, uh, there were 629 fintechs uh, in Australia. Uh, developed out of Australia, including the five neobanks uh, and then a number of others. So, you know, just as an example, 141 of those are in the payment space. So there's an incredible amount of innovation. There's lots of learnings that are coming from overseas. And we're beginning to see uh, more and more of the Australian fintechs uh, start to branch out into other parts of Asia Pacific. But um, certainly I'd say that in addition to the barriers to entry, there's absolutely a incredibly strong local community. Uh, yeah, indeed. I mean, you you can't uh, discount that by by any stretch. I think, uh, as you mentioned there, that that report's nine months old. Something rather large has happened in the last six months or so, Dexter, with with the pandemic and everything. How have you seen that impact uh, consumer behaviour? Uh, have we seen collaboration between uh, sort of government fintech incumbents? Have we seen the best of fintech in this period of time? Um, absolutely, actually. Uh, I think we're and, and again, I'll go back to um, business lending. And if you look at what's happened in the UK and the US, I think we've had the exact opposite here in Australia, where the government, fintech and the incumbents have been working very well together. Um, I caught up with Bo Batoli, who's co-founder of Prosper, and they're Australia's leading um, SME lender. And he was taught me through how quickly they mobilized, developed two new products to support small businesses through COVID. Um, and the, the government's put in, I think, or they've they've guaranteed loans to um, judo, get capital, um, prosper, and uh, I think there's a, a couple of others who are involved as well. So I've been massively, massively, massively impressed by the response of everybody in the in the sector, as well as government and the incumbents. Yeah, it's been really something to see, hasn't it, uh, uh, Stuart? How. Uh... Different countries have taken different approaches post-pandemic, but actually having a vibrant market and collaboration between all of those key actors is key to getting lending out when when uh, businesses are stressed. Yeah, absolutely, and and not just businesses, but um, uh, consumers. So you know, I know uh, in the press in Australia, there's been articles around the incredible uptick in refinancing going on for loans as people look to. Uh, save every dollar they can is not not sure what the future holds. So the ability to sort of bring some of these solutions to market rapidly uh, is is key to to that sort of um, support of, of of the community as we sort of go through the crisis. Indeed, Van, what are your reflections on uh, the, the the pandemic and, and consumer response to it uh, as you look at it with a fintech lens? Yeah, so the um, 
So in terms of how that's changed um, customer behaviour or customer sentiment, uh, we're certainly um, observing an increased interest in investing um, and I think to some degree that also reflects how how um, difficult um, it is for many people to be able to enter the housing market without that first deposit saved up. So people are looking for other alternatives to build their wealth um, in this period over and above just, just savings. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we were quite keen to look at how else can we help people get more out of their money aside from traditional banking products. Um, and that led to the creation of Dabble, which is an opportunity for Australians to um, buy fractions of shares. So the, the whole um, opportunity of uh, a neobank is being able to create opportunities for customers that just previously wouldn't have existed. It's not just reimagining the banking experience, but reimagining financial opportunities and how we can use technology and digital services um, and the ability for them to be borderless to bring these kinds of opportunities to, to local customers. So this increased um, appetite for investment and other ways to build wealth is one of the things that we've seen through COVID, as well as if I think quite um, a little bit broadly beyond Australia for the APAC region, it's also um, really demonstrated the value of branchless banking for parts of the region where there's a large population of underbanked or unbanked consumers. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, if your branches don't work anymore uh, and you've got consumer needs, Stuart, that, that's really, really crucial. Have you seen similar things across the region? Oh, absolutely. So, um, you know, for example, we've uh, just opened a new cloud region in Indonesia and, and we already have a number of banks uh, in, in the uh, Google Cloud uh, up in um, Indonesia. And I think, you know, when, when you sort of consider, you know, close to half of the world's population is in Asia Pacific and a huge diversity of um, uh, levels of economic uh, ability, if you like, in terms of developing economies, developed economies and so on, you know, there, there's an immense... Uh, uh, move to to financial inclusion happening, and uh, and I think um, the ability to bring those very unique uh, products and services to market quickly is a, a key to to uh, both helping the region get through the crisis, but also uh, setting up people for what comes beyond the crisis. And Dexter, any thoughts on the wider region? Um, I I really think that that's where the opportunity is for Australian fintechs. Um, on reflection. If I was to say, perhaps you know, there's one thing that we've, as a as as an industry and as a nation in fintech, got wrong is we've emulated the UK. When I think what we should have been doing was looking at what was happening in Southeast Asia and China, as the as the blueprint for what fintech can be. Um, I've, I think you know we've everybody has discussed the challenges of a neo bank model and you know when do they hit profitability. And look, they're—I think they're—they're they're global challenges. Um, so, what's interesting for me is to see how we move beyond just purely banking models and look at you know the, some of the things Stuart touched on around financial inclusion and and the exchange of wealth, um, particularly in these regions. And you know, a business like Zenja, I look at their you know their capability, their branding, what they've got. And it's you know it, it's kind of tailor made for the Southeast Asian market. It's uh, mm. you know, I think that's a huge opportunity. Five hundred million people, fifty percent of them have smartphones. There aren't any digital banks, and you've got the regulators and central banks and of of those countries really worried about Libra 
and digital currencies that are, are non-fiat. Mm. Uh, do you agree with that, uh, Van? What are your thoughts? The, um, yeah, the, the, the increasing deregulation of the Asia-Pacific market has been an interesting trend to watch. You know, we're, we've been watching um, what's been happening in Singapore with the introduction of the digital licenses, Malaysia, we expect Indonesia and, and Vietnam to, to follow. But we're also seeing that um, existing legacy banks in that region are um, investing quite heavily in charting out what their digital strategy looks like going forward. And they're making some pretty um, big decisions at the moment around do we continue to upgrade our legacy systems or do we just start again from scratch and, and create our um, own opportunities. The, um, we're you know, really keen to see what new financial opportunities we could bring to that region um, for us, it's not just about being more of the same, but trying to really find those customer problems that no one's really yet solved in a remarkable way, all these needs that no one's really um, addressed yet, that naturally lends themselves to leveraging data and technology and the power of just having a smartphone in your hands. So those are the sweet spots where we're keen to play. And there's plenty of that um, in the, um, the Asia-Pac region. Uh, but for us, though, right now, we want to focus on demonstrating that capability here in the Australian market. Australia is a great test market for just about any piece of software, so we don't see um, a, a banking app as being um, anything new in terms of being able to test the, the rigour of the experience here in the Australian market, um, but then being able to translate that into markets um, across the world, whether it's translating the experience or being able to take the IP that we've built here and making it available to other markets. We think there's um, plenty of opportunity um, globally to keep building on these learnings and solving these problems in increasingly unique ways. Mm, powerful. I love that idea as well. It's it's really oriented in the customer problem rather than the financial product. We talked a long time about your know, banks get stuck in the financial product. Like, how do I make money on lending if I've not got a current account? And it's like, that's the worldview and reality. Whereas uh, if you look at the uh, tech building blocks that you've got, if you have experience in regulation like Azinja, uh, but at the same time, you're really oriented in solving customer problems, you can do powerful things with data, can't you, Stuart? Yeah, absolutely, and um, and I think uh, you know one of the things that we're seeing, just to sort of come back to the uh, the banking license question, especially in uh, Singapore, Malaysia, and so on, is more and more of the applicants are not traditional banks or coming from a traditional funding source. They are telecommunications companies, they are technology platform companies, they are coming from a whole range of different industries, and and I think um. You know, as you say, the data is, you know, if I think about what defines a bank of uh, the future, it is a, a data-driven organisation that provides a, a banking service of some sort, depending on what the service is. It could be regulated or it could be uh, non-regulated, but um, but absolutely, uh, and, you know, and this is where a lot of organisations will come, uh, will work with Google Cloud on, on that question of how do you understand not only your data, but more importantly, the ecosystems data to help you not only provide those services, but meet all the requirements around financial crime and um, risk and making sure you're a safe bank and a secure bank and all those sorts of things. So uh, the data piece is absolutely key. And certainly that's often for us uh, one of the entry points into a, a partnership with uh, Google. 
I look at there's a whole bunch of startups that I've seen in the past couple of weeks, like Lendflow.io and Upstart.com, and uh, you know these are very US centric companies, even Alloy, and they'll talk about reducing uh, sort of the uh, kind of uh, underwriting risks by up to fifty percent and increasing conversion by up to ninety five percent whilst onboarding a customer. Now those statistics are absolutely massive, and what that means for a bank's bottom line is is phenomenal. And if embedded finance means that you can acquire customers for near zero marginal cost. The, that becomes really, really exciting, I think, for, for a lot of um, organizations with a balance sheet. But then they have to wrestle with potentially giving up their brand. Um, and Dexter, do you think the big four, especially if they've been so dominant with their brand for so long, do you think they would move to this model where they're going to enable fintechs? Or do you still think there's a bit of friction there? Um, Westpac already has. So they announced a partnership with 10x to build a banking as a service platform. That was back in October last year. So I think that the the big four banks are acutely aware of the not only the challenges, but I think the opportunities as well. Um, the the challenge is always as a you know, a listed business, your shareholders and and profits are what come first. And I think that's what's really you know if you look at some of the the hits that the big four banks have taken, particularly with the the fines that have been um, labeled or they've been hit with recently. I think innovation is going to be really tough for them to get on board with, particularly now that we've got COVID as well. Um, interestingly, we've seen, you know, there's a there's an interesting scenario that I, I kind of want to put out there, which I remember back in 2008, 2009, and there were people or employees from Westpac on the streets giving out flyers for term deposits. And it was because Westpac were dangerously close to actually over being over leveraged with their lending ratios. So at the time, I think their lending book was 40% deposits, 60% wholesale funding. Now, post uh, GFC, most of the Aussie banks have got that ratio down to 60-40. But we've now seen, what, six months where a lot of um, people have gone on honeymoon from payments of their mortgage. And that's got to be having a massive impact on the big four banks. So I think we're we're kind of hitting a... A dicey period where I think if we're not careful, you know, we we could really see some challenges for the big four banks where innovation will be put very much on ice, and it could give a you know an opportunity, particularly to the Asian players like Tencent, Alipay, etc., to come in and really get a foothold. Do you think that's a real worry for the incumbents, Van? Um, so one of the things that um, you know we've seen is that there are some customer segments that are deeply sticky. Um, there are some that uh, very much play um, to the mercy of what we call the lazy tax, and and there are segments who um, are interested in in chasing um, every dollar. So I think um, you know the a new better offer will always be a, a threat to an incumbent, especially if the friction of trying that new product is low. And, and what we certainly see is that people have a high um, willingness to try new services, um, so not necessarily close down or switch what they currently have, but to take on um, new products or services to try. And if they like them, they, they will stay. Um, so the, the real um, challenge is not so much whether these um, you know, new challenges will enter the market, but more do they solve customer problems 
again an easier or better way or offer more value? That's the real question. And that's always a great anchor point. Um, I think, Stuart, um, before we wrap this one up, I just want to give you the last words um, before we before we close this show out. I mean, I think anchoring in customer problem is a, is a great way to think about that. What, what else should we be thinking about as we look forward? So, so look, I think um, uh, at Google, we talk about three things. We talk about security, uh, agility, and innovation. So those three things, um, and I can say that uh, there are absolutely a number of the larger institutions in Australia today are uh, investing quite significantly in, in, in thinking about their future uh, with those three uh, dimensions in mind. Um, and it's really going to come down to the right combination of those things uh, to help them uh, continue to be relevant going forward. And let's hope some banks can maintain relevance. The market is definitely changing. And that wraps up uh, today's discussion. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your companies? Let's start with Van. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn and also on Twitter, Van at Zinger. Van at Zinger. Check that out. Uh, Stuart, how about yourself? Uh, so Stuart Houston on uh, on LinkedIn, obviously. And if you go to Google and Google up uh, Google Cloud Financial Services, you'll uh, get taken to our Australian page or Singapore page, depending on where you are. Google, Google. That's hard to say. <laughs> um, already. Uh, how about you, Dexter? Uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, both just Dexter Cousins and tier1people.com. Thank you so much, Dexter. You can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or Simon Taylor on LinkedIn. Uh, thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please do remember to subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review. It makes the show better and it helps others find the show. Speaking of making it better, please give us your thoughts on that survey, bit.ly forward slash Insider survey. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider. Thank you very much and we shall see you soon.